You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio. Hear the word of the Lord from John 2, 12 to 22. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. After making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Amen, amen. Around this time of year, um, people start cleaning out their homes, right? Spring cleaning. And then you see that. My neighborhood's been littered with garage sales. Um, So people clean out their homes. Garage sales come out. Everybody who just cleaned out their homes starts going to random people's garages and buying some of their slightly better junk and then filling the house. It's sort of the rotation of the summer springtime. And in today's passage, we have something like that, uh, something in the vein of some sort of spring cleaning as Jesus purifies the temple. Uh, And what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack this thing. And and this might be a a pericope. This might be a passage that's familiar in your mind. But I I would be willing to bet that you have not spent a lot of time sitting in this to see all of the different layers that are going on here. And so I want to kind of unpack some of this. And as we do this, we're going to talk about a few things, maybe unexpected. First, we're going to talk about economy. Second, we're talking about emotions. And third, what zeal for the Lord looks like. That's sort of the rough outline for today. So as we open up our passage, we've been in the Gospel of John for the last few weeks. We'll be in it for probably about another year. Um, And what we saw as Jesus begins his ministry in John chapter 2, first he was at a wedding, um, and we turned the water into wine, really cool miracle that he does. And now uh, they leave that, they depart, and sometime after this, they head to uh, Jerusalem. So Jesus takes his mom, his disciples, and they go to Jerusalem where they celebrate the Passover. The Passover is a celebration that Jews would celebrate every year, commemorating uh, the work that God did to deliver the Jews out from underneath Egyptian slavery, right? You remember this episode, they took the blood of a lamb, put it over the doorpost, the angel of death, Wherever there was the blood on the doorpost, the angel of death passed over. But those who didn't have that marker, 
they lost their first sons and it led to the deliverance. So every year, God commanded his people to remember this thing, to remember this defining moment in their history and celebrate that. And what would happen in these celebrations is that people would come from all over the place, all of the Jews would come and make their way back to the temple and they would um, offer sacrifices, there would be festival, there would be, um, uh, there would be some temple tax that, that people would come and they would pay that for that part of the year. And as people come from all over, rather than traveling with animals to celebrate and to offer their sacrifices, they would get to Jerusalem and they would find a vendor and they would purchase their animals that they would then sacrifice later on at the temple. And so this is a, a pretty typical phenomenon that we see throughout history that, that's um, in the history of the Jews. And another thing that goes on that's mentioned here is that there are money changers who are exchanging um, coins, so pagan coins, um, for pure silver. The temple tax needed to be paid in pure silver. And so people coming from foreign lands would have different types of currency. They'd have to trade it in and make an exchange. And so you have these vendors set up outside of the temple um, so that people could buy the animals they needed for sacrifice to worship rightly and to pay the temple tax as they were commanded to do. Now, this economic activity that revolves around the temple and and the worship patterns of God's people um, is not a problem in itself because it happens outside of the temple. This is something that happens in the marketplace. In fact, to to see an an economy like that is a good thing where it revolves around the worship of God. That kind of economy is a good thing because a Christian economy is part of building a flourishing Christian society. The exchange of goods and money and services is a good thing if you want to build a new Christendom, if you want to build a society that is centered on the worship of God. A Christian economy is developed when Christian values and ethics flow into the marketplace. So what we say about Christian character and virtue and goodness, all of that doesn't just stay in in sacred places. That goes out everywhere that we go. It comes along with us. And this is a way that Christians, um, to, to do this, to participate in an economy this way, is to set up a system of blessing your family and that you provide for your family, you, you provide goods or services that in turn earns a paycheck so you can support and provide for your family. But this type of economy, this marketplace uh, mentality, also is a way to bless the people of your community by providing quality goods and services. Right? Not everybody knows how to sew. Not everybody knows how to build a house. And so it's helpful to have people who specialize in those things. And when you provide a, a just, a good, a valuable product or service, it is a way to bless the community around you. And what happens when you see uh, you, you've got Christians that are starting businesses, one thing that we get to do as Christians is support Christian business owners, Um, And and part of this value is supporting people who don't hate you and your faith, which in this economy, a lot of the retailers hate you. A lot of the people that you go to to buy things from on a regular basis hate Jesus, first of all, hate what you're for, hate your values. And so this is a way for the Christians to create a Christian market that our values, our ethics, our beliefs, our Christ is honored. This is a good thing. This is a way that Christians, and this is why I'm touching on this right now. It seems kind of out of place, but I'll I'll connect these together. Um, 
The reason why we need to talk about economy is, is, um, is because if we want to renew the city, like our mission is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city, the renewal of the city includes how we do commerce. The renewal of the city includes how we buy and trade and sell things, how we conduct ourselves in the business world. And one thing that Christians often don't understand, because as I get talking about economics, a lot of people, maybe this is you, say, well, what? this seems way out of left field here. Like, what place do we have as Christians to talk about economics? Well, the Bible talks about economy way more than you realize, a ton. Let me just run you through. This is just a, a real quick glimpse, a survey of what the Bible says about economy. Leviticus 9, don't rob your neighbor. Good place to start in business, don't rob people. Deuteronomy 24 um, talks about offering fair interest rates and fees, especially within the community of God's people. Uh, the Jews were not allowed to take interest against their brother. They would lend, it would be a charitable lend uh, that they would expect to be paid back, but they wouldn't take interest. This is a way that the economy would be able to be zapped and they could actually make waves and create an alternative economy. Deuteronomy 25. Actually, this, some of this stuff comes from your uh, Feast to Flourish Bible reading plan this, this past week, if you've read through this. Deuteronomy 25 talks about using equal weights and measures. The scale that you use can't be crooked. Just weights and measures. James 5 says, pay your bills. If you owe somebody something, don't defraud them. Pay your bill. Luke 10, if you have employees, pay them fairly. Colossians 4, treat your employees fairly. This is about good economy, good marketplace practice. 2 Corinthians 6 tells Christians not to partner with unbelievers. That is to be unequally yoked. Ephesians 4 tells us to work honestly. Colossians 3 tells us to work hard as unto the Lord. All of these things have to do with the way you conduct business. The Bible speaks about workplace, about economy, a lot because Jesus Christ is Lord of all things, even the economy. God cares about how Christians do business because when business is done righteously, it brings glory to God in heaven. Now, for Christians, glorifying God should be our chief concern. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, right? And so our chief concern as Christians ought to be the glory of God. Now what we see in this passage today is that the glory of God was Jesus's chief concern. Now as I talk about this economy, doing uh, the economy from a Christian perspective, it sounds great, it works great when everybody's doing it right, but the challenge of this is when you do business with Christians, God love them, they're still sinners. When you're doing business with fellow Christians, they are still sinners. And, and we as Christians have not been perfected in the sense that we don't sin anymore, we still struggle, we wrestle against our sin. Um, and so it's possible for things like the love of money the idolatry of success, deceit, greediness, sloth, or a slew of other sins to plague our business practices. 
And when Christians can't deal fairly with other Christians or even non-believers, what happens uh, because of sin in our economic dealings, it leaves a wake of economic pain and relational pain. Because not only are we just exchanging goods and services, we're doing so with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And so sin in the business sphere can be especially damaging. And it's likely that if, if you're trying to do business with fellow Christians, it's likely that you've been on, the, on both the giving end and the receiving end of difficulties. And when we have this going on, when, when there's a sort of um, this disconnect between our gospel proclamation and gospel living, it creates all kinds of problems. Because as Christians, we cannot honor Jesus in, as Lord in selective quadrants of life. We don't get to choose, pick and choose, what Jesus is Lord over in my life. I don't get to say to Jesus, well, you can, you can be Lord of my Sunday mornings, but I'm actually the Lord of my wallet. You, you get to be Lord of my praises, but I'm Lord of my sexuality. We, we don't get to do that. If Jesus is Lord, he is Lord of all. Now, as we deal with Christians who sin in business, it unfortunately makes Christians leery of doing business with other Christians. Right? You, you get poked, it's like, yeah, I don't want to do that again. It's not really worth it. And so instead of reconciling, figuring things out, a way forward, you jump... <laughs> and you go to the vendors who hate you, right? And when this happens, when there's this fracturing of relationships and economic strain, it creates division in the church and ultimately it undermines our mission of renewing the city. So it's important for us to think if Jesus is Lord of, law, oh, Lord of all, it includes economy, it includes how we conduct our business. Now in the other gospel accounts that we see, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they uh, present this, this synopsis of Jesus purifying the temple, there, and actually I, be, I believe there are two different instances of Jesus purifying the temple because this one that John presents is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the other ones that we see in the synoptic gospels comes later on in Jesus' ministry. It leads me to believe that there are two unique instances where Jesus purifies the temple. Now, the purification that happens later on in Jesus' ministry, his focus, his, what he's addressing is Christians, well, Jews, doing bad business with other Jews. And so he addresses this problem. He says, the Lord's house has become a den of thieves. He's addressing the unjust handlings of business, the, the greedy business practices, and he's taking issue with this and then also drives these vendors out of the temple. Right? He takes issue with the fact that they're corrupt. They're not doing business in a God-exalting way. But in this first purification of the temple that happens in John chapter 2, John wants us to see the emphasis, specifically in this scenario, is on the location in which this business takes place. We see this here. Look at um, John chapter 2, verse 12. And this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those in the temple. He found those who were selling auction and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. 
So the problem here in this scenario, the, the, the thing that stirred confrontation, why Jesus stands up and says, this isn't okay, is the fact that not that business, not that Christian business is happening, but Christian business is happening in a place that it's not supposed to happen in the temple. The temple is a sacred space. The temple is a place on earth that is unlike any other place on earth. And what's happening in this instant, what Jesus is really confronting here is the fact that a sacred space is being desecrated. Here we have the house of the Lord, which is meant to be a house of prayer, a house of worship, a, prayer, a house of praise. And in the background, you have all kinds of distracting sights and smells and noises. The, the place that's meant for prayer and worship sounds and smells more like a 4-H exhibit. Smells like the county fair. Right, the place that's meant for prayer and worship feels more like Wall Street with the buzz and the hubbub of changing money and making transactions. Now Jesus knows the Father, God the Father, his Father, is not pleased with the desecration that's going on in the temple. And Jesus, we see, he takes it personally because it's not just the temple. It's not just the house of the Lord. He says, it's my father's house. He's saying, don't, don't bring that stuff into my father's house. Now, I got something similar like this going on in my house. I'm a Raiders fan. Many of you probably know that. Um, and so I take it personally when my kids' friends walk into my house with a Patrick Mahomes jersey, Right? <laughs> When I see that chief stuff come into my house, I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> and um, Jesus takes offense at it. It's his father's house. It's being disrespected. And so Jesus does what I have now resolved to do at my house with chief's fans is that Jesus makes a whip and drives them out of the temple. <laughs> That's what's going to happen from now on. Jesus makes a whip. Look at this in verse 15. And making a whip of cords... He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, last week, if you remember the way that Jesus interacted with his mother, Mary, um, it was one of those things. It was like, what's going on? Well, this, this, is similar to that. You read this, you're like, what's going on with Jesus? What's, do you wake up on the wrong side of the bed or what? Right, so this passage, we see his reaction, makes a whip, drives people out. It confounds us a little bit. Did Jesus just lose his pee pick in mind? Did, did, did Jesus just come emotionally unhinged? Is, it, is he setting a precedent where it's okay for us to rage if we're to imitate Christ? Now, there are some pastors out on the interwebs that they come to passages like this and say, well, this is Jesus showing us his human side. Jesus is making a mistake. Even Jesus had bad moments too. And if you're listening to people that say stuff like this about Jesus, you're listening to a false teacher. They're wrong. Jesus did everything perfectly. Not once in Jesus' life did he sin, not even in this moment when we look at these 10 verses. 
This means that what we see with Jesus here, that to some might look like he's unhinged. Jesus is not unhinged. What we're seeing in this moment from Jesus is an emotional reaction that is tempered and under control. This isn't an emotional reaction or a momentary lapse of control on Jesus' behalf where he loses the grip. This is a perfectly calculated and perfectly expressed response to sin in his father's house. Jesus is perfect. And so it's important for us to understand the difference between reacting and responding. Let me break this down. This is going to talk about the emotional part of things. Reacting is a, it's an emotional reflex to change. When something happens, whether you're in conflict or, or something doesn't just go your way or you, whatever it might be, when something happens, there's a change, you have this emotional, this gut level response that's sort of a reflex. It just naturally comes out of you. And, and typically your reflex, that reaction is, especially in, in person-to-person conflict, that reaction is typically in kind or escalates. You see this all the time. Just come to my house for one day and you'll see this all the time with my boys where somebody's walking through the hallway, shoulder checks the other brother and swiftly the other one smacks him. That's an emotional reflex, right? Somebody's been wrong. They don't have the emotional maturity to say, okay, how do I handle this properly? It's just this instantaneous pops right out. Now, adults do this too. It's not just kids. Adults do this too. Usually there's less punching, um, but emotionally it happens. Where you're, you're reacting to something, not in a tempered and controlled way. It's, it's very much a unfiltered blah, reaction. And what this reveals oftentimes, now there's, there's moments, you, very specific moments where this sort of reactivity is helpful. Like if, you, if there's somebody threatening your wife, you better react fast. You better punch that dude in the throat, right? There's a moment where that reaction is a good thing. But oftentimes when it comes to the emotional level of, of reacting, it reveals some kind of emotional or relational immaturity. It shows us in that moment that reflex is, is really the flesh, our sinful flesh controlling us. Where in that moment, emotions become the standard. Or my view of what's right and wrong becomes the standard. And when that line gets crossed, it's up to me. It's up to my emotions then to release judgment on that person or that thing or the event. All right, so that, that's what reacting looks like, this reflex. Now, responding, to respond to something is more tempered and more thoughtful. That's not to say you don't have a reflex that makes you want to do something. To respond actually restrains that. It's an exercise of self-control. To give response is to take responsibility. You see how those response, responsibility, similar words. To give a response means that you take responsibility for the events, the things that you contributed to to get to this spot, but also taking responsibility for the way that you feel in that moment, taking responsibility for your emotions. Now, a good example of response is, is when parents um, see a kid who disobeys, literally you gave a command 30 seconds before, and that kid blatantly disobeys, 
And rather than blowing up and having this reaction, I can't believe you did that, right? That would be to react. A response is, excuse me, son, what just happened? We, we need to talk about what this, so, so you're tempered, you're, you're calculated, you're demonstrating self-control in those moments. Now, you're still gonna take action. You're still going to discipline your child for the glory of God, but it's a calculated approach. It's not, it's not um, reactionary, it's even-handed. And what responding to circumstances or conflict does, it demonstrates a spiritual, emotional, and relational maturity. That, that really points to one thing, that, that your flesh is being subdued by the power of the Holy Spirit. That you're not gratifying the desires of the flesh, but you are submitting to the Holy Spirit in that moment. Now, let me just ask you, you think about this, the, the two difference between to respond and to react in your last conflict, be it with your spouse, a friend, uh, your kids, somebody in your mission community family, which one are you most inclined to do? Do you find yourself um, demonstrating self-control to to be well-differentiated where you can sort of step outside for a moment and observe everything and take it all in and then step back into it? Or do you tend to have this fleshly inclination, this this emotional reflex where you just gotta lash out? You gotta respond and you gotta respond now. Or, Or even... There's another way that this surfaces, and if you do nothing. If there's conflict, if there's some sort of interaction and you do nothing about it, you completely ignore what Jesus commands his disciples to do in Matthew 18, where he says, if your brother sins against you, go to your brother. If he doesn't listen, then go. I mean, it escalates. Go to the elders. Go to the church. Right? To, to not handle conflict, to not handle this relational um, confrontation is an abdication of obedience And it is also the flesh that motivates this as well. One of the things that the Spirit does is helps us to respond, not react. Now, we've already been told in Jesus' baptism that the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon Jesus, and the Holy Spirit remained upon him. That means that everything that Jesus has done is under the control of the Holy Spirit. And in this moment, under the control of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sits down, collects leather straps, braids them together into a whip, attaches it to a handle, and then he says, you can't do this anymore. And people scatter. Now, this is a response to the sin that Jesus has seen. And, and we see this in the fact that verse 17 tells us why. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. It's because Jesus has zeal for the house of the Lord and it causes him to respond in this manner. It's calculated, it's even-handed. Now, a scenario like this would go viral today. As soon as people are like, oh, it's going to get crazy, get out your phone, put it up, watch this guy go nuts. It'd go viral today because in one sense you have Jesus, um, this really who's a, a, a nobody from, from Nazareth. Remember, does anything good come out of Nazareth? You got this random guy taking on a whole religious, a corrupt religious structure. And so the underdog lover in us looks at this and go, yes, you get him, Jesus, you show him. 
You tell him who's boss. Right, what you doing? Yeah. But in reality, if, if you were there, if you were there in the room while Jesus is doing this, this situation makes Jesus look like a loser in the eyes of the people. And this has to do with the way that the religious leaders interact with Jesus, okay? So we're talking about public opinion. In the eyes of public opinion, Jesus looks like he's being embarrassed. Now, first of all, let's, let's look why. In an honor-shame culture, which the Jews very much operated in, um, to, to do something like this, to, to stand up, to make a scene, those who are in authority, those who are in a higher position of honor would either ignore it completely, which would be a total embarrassment, or ask, uh, uh, what's the question, the type of, uh, um, a question that doesn't really warrant a response. What am I talking about? Rhetorical question. Just sort of a mocking, like, and that's what they do. When they say, uh, do the Jews say to him, what sign do you show for us to do these things? They're saying like, who are you? And so they're, they're, it's a slight on Jesus. You're nobody. What are you doing here? And so you see this uh, honor-shame relationship where the Jews are shaming Jesus for the activity that he's done. Now, the second thing that tells us that there's, that this, there's a weight of shame, that there's shame sort of humming along in this scenario is that the psalm that's quoted in this passage um, is Psalm 69. This, this is the psalm that, um, that the disciples later on remember, zeal for the house consuming let me turn it here real quick. Now, when you, when you see a passage that's quoted in Scripture, um, it's helpful to understand the context of that passage that's being quoted. Okay, so here what it says, zeal for the house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. That's the quote. But if you go to, to Psalm 69, verse 9, where this is happening... Um, this whole psalm is about the fact that, that David, trying to do right by God, is being shamed and ridiculed and made fun of by evildoers, and he's being humiliated. This is what the whole psalm's about. David's trying to do the right thing by God. Everybody else is making fun of him. And so this, this verse that's quoted, for zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. So David's saying, because I'm standing up for your name, because I've stood up for your name, shame has found me. People ridicule me. They try to humiliate me because David refuses to cave to the wickedness around him. Now, church, this is a moment in, in this cultural moment where we have to resolve that we have to be okay with being ridiculed and shamed. To stand for Christ means that you will stand for the things that our culture is largely in support of. To stand for Christ doesn't mean that you can clap your hands with June Pride Month. You can't go along with the evil that is infiltrating our society. And that's just one thing of many. You can break it down to greed, envy, lust, go through the whole list. If you stand with God, you will find yourself standing against wickedness and the wicked are scoffers. That's what David experienced. That's what the church will experience when she faithfully submits to her bridegroom. And Jesus experiences the same thing. Jesus has zeal for the house of the Lord to an even greater degree than King David did. And in this, Jesus is shamed. He's, he's ridiculed. He's being made fun of, a skeptical in the eyes of the public. Now, this, is, this should be very confusing because what we have in this passage is Jesus, the God-man himself. 
God in the flesh, in the place where God is to be worshiped, where the people bring their sacrifices and offerings and praise into the house of the Lord. You have this Jesus, this God-man before them, and instead of being worshiped and praised, he's ridiculed, he's humiliated. He's treated with contempt. Now, this theme of shame was, was very present in the last passage that we, about the, the wedding feast where um, the, the bride and the groom were short on the wine and if, if they didn't um, provide enough wine for their wedding celebration, it'd be, it'd be just cultural, societal shame, failure, right? Embarrassed, remember that from last week? So what we saw was Jesus in that instance covering the shame of this couple and now Jesus is in the temple being publicly humiliated. Night and day difference. From covering shame to be ridiculed, to be ashamed. Now, a good thing is that the opinions of man don't have a lot of sway on Jesus. Um, Public opinion doesn't deter Jesus from doing what is right by his father. And what Jesus does in verses 19 and 20, he, he flashes his credentials here. So the, the Jews ask, on whose authority? Or show us a sign. Who are you to do this? And Jesus says this, look at this. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it has, been, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Now, the Jews in this interaction think that Jesus is talking about destroying the brick-and-mortar temple. They think that Jesus is talking about this, this infrastructure that they're probably standing in, um, that Jesus is capable of destroying it or it's capable of being destroyed, and then Jesus can put it back together in three days. What they don't realize is Jesus is standing before them saying that I, Jesus, is the true and better temple. Jesus is where the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. Jesus is the one who is worthy of all praise and honor. Our offerings brought in to him. And what we're told in verse 21 is that Jesus is talking about his body, not the temple. He's talking about his own body, flesh and blood, being destroyed and then raised in three days. And two-ish years later, um, after facing this shame in the temple, Jesus will face the ultimate shame on the cross where this Jesus is stripped, ridiculed, mocked, spit on, made fun of, and then nailed to a cross. And what held him to that cross what put him on that cross was our sin-induced shame. He wasn't there for his own shame. He wasn't there because he did something wrong and was embarrassed. He was there for us, for our guilt, for our shame that we have compiled because of our sinfulness. And there on the cross, Jesus took it all upon himself. Jesus took the whip for you. 
And Hebrews 12, 2 tells us it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured. There was something joyful on the other side of shame that made Jesus press through. And not only did he press through the shame, he despised it. He flipped shame on shame. Where shame is, is this despicable attitude towards somebody else for the wrong that they've done. Jesus looks at shame and says, it doesn't work here. I've dealt with it. I, I've taken the shame for the sins of the people. And to believe this reality, to believe in Christ's work on the cross is to be healed by his stripes. It's to be cleansed of your sin, to be freed from your guilt, from your shame, from your wrongdoings, whether it be in the marketplace or emotionally or, or sexually or any other facet of sin that you can go and get your hands in. Jesus dealt with it there. And John, later on in an epistle, he, he writes in 1 John 1, 7 through 9, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The purification, listen, the moment, Jesus chases out the oxen, the sheep, the doves, because he's saying, I'm the sacrifice. It's not their blood, it's my blood that's gonna deal with sin. It's my blood that's going to cleanse you of everything that you've ever done wrong. It's the blood of Jesus, his son, that cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You might be in here today and you're trying to cover up your sins. You're trying to hide the shame. You're trying to keep it under wraps. Just sort of pretend you've got a facade on you. Everything's okay. And that in itself is slavery. That in itself will lead to a cruel and, and just painful existence. The only remedy that you will find is to come and confess your sins, to receive grace and mercy through our Lord and Jesus Christ who laid out his life for you and shed his blood. So your sins would be cleansed. This is the only hope we have. That the blood of Christ would cleanse us from sin. And when we place our faith in Christ, when we believe, when we see the truth of God, it's been revealed to us, that God's worked in a way that opens up our heart to receive the gift of grace, we are placed in Christ. Christian, you are right now in Christ. Now, if Christ is standing before us and saying that I am the true and better temple, this means that you are in Christ in the true and better temple. In fact, 1 Peter 2 talks about this. It says, listen to this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men. Who's he talking about? The Jewish leaders, rejected by the Jews, rejected by the people that Jesus came to save, his own. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house the tabernacle, the temple, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. You see this, the, the temple, the place of sacrifice. Now Jesus says like, in me, when you're in me, now this is what the church is. 
Spiritual sacrifice is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him, listen, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now this passage, these two things, they they make this connection where the disciples, they they see, um, okay, so let let me take you to it. It says in verse 22, therefore, when Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You see this connection between but hearing, believing, obeying the word. You see it in the disciples, but those who are rejected, those who stumble over Christ, disobey the word. The good news of the gospel just reaches so far. Not only are your sins are dealt with, not only is your shame dealt with, not only is your guilt dealt with, not only are you reconciled to God who you at one time were an enemy of, Not only were you once an orphan of wrath, but now brought into the family of God, called God your father, brothers and sisters in the faith. Not only do you have all that, but then you're placed in Christ. And God's spirit is then placed in you. In believing the gospel, God isn't just with us here. God is in us by the Spirit of God dwelling in the hearts of believers, God is present. God is in you if you are in Christ. This is such good news. This is something, listen, when David was facing the shame that he experienced in Psalm 69, um, he didn't have that privilege of God being in him the way that we have that. God, God, we could say, was certainly there with him. He was present but not with him in the same sense where Christ, by the gospel, has afforded us the ability now for the spirit to reside in our hearts, that we become the temple, tabernacle, together where Christ is the cornerstone. This is, guys, this is such good news that we have received all of this, not based on our own effort, but because what Christ has done. And when we see all of this Christ, this, uh, all of this grace, this grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, this creates gratitude. Grace produces gratitude, and gratitude creates zeal. Listen to this. I've got a a quote here from uh, Pastor Charles Spurgeon. It's a long one, so you can follow along with me. Listen to this. A deep sense of gratitude will nourish Christian zeal. Looking to the hole of the pit whence we were digged, we find abundant reason why we should spend and be spent for God. And zeal is also stimulated by the thought of the eternal future. It looks with tearful eyes down to the flames of hell, and it cannot slumber. It looks up with anxious gaze to the glories of heaven, and it cannot bestir itself. It feels that time is short compared with the work to be done, and therefore it devotes all that it has to the cause of its Lord. 
and it is ever strengthened by the remembrance of Christ's example. He was clothed with zeal as with a cloak. How swift the chariot wheels of duty went with him. He knew no loitering by the way. Let us prove that we are his disciples by manifesting the same spirit of zeal. When grace is at work in our lives, it creates gratitude. When gratitude is taking place, it creates zeal. It it quickens us to do the things that God has put before us to do. The gospel makes us zealous for the Lord. This is not something that you can stir up in yourself. This isn't like get the right playlist in and then zeal will, you know, pump behind you. A zeal for the Lord comes from grace to gratitude and now living life is worship. And the work of the Holy Spirit that resides in us, I'm bringing it home here. The work of the Holy Spirit that resides in every believer now stirs our gospel zeal. Let me say that again. And the Holy Spirit that's now dwelling in us is working in us to produce gospel zeal towards two ends, okay? Two ends, really. One is to sanctify us. When people love the Lord, we love his word. You cannot love the Lord and despise his word. To love the Lord is to love his word because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when you love the word, you conform to the word. We live life as those being reformed by the word of God, whether it's with economics or with emotions or any other facet of life. We subject ourselves to the lordship of Christ as he communicates to his people through his word. And we are, as the church, as the temple, are to reject the sin that defiles us. Let me take you back to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2. It says, so put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. He said, purify. Purify yourself. He goes on, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, listen, he, another command. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is to purify, to sanctify the church that she should become pure and blameless and spotless through the the work of Christ, the washing of the water of the word. So we are to, to reject the sin that defiles us. That's the first one where the spirit is working to sanctify the church. Second, The Spirit is working to send us out on mission. As we're unburdened by our shame and sin, we we step out from the bondage of those things and life into freedom. And we are free, as Peter says it here, we are free to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We proclaim that Christ is, bore our shame, and he'll do it for you too. 
We proclaim that Christ has defeated the evil one and is now ruling and reigning over the whole cosmos. Zeal for the Lord will send us out on mission. Not like this checklist thing of where we gotta do it to make God happy. No, no, no. Once we've received grace, gratitude stirs up. Gratitude produces zeal. Zeal pushes us out on mission. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and thinking, man, I just, I don't know if I have, I don't, I see Jesus' zeal in the temple. He stands up, he can deliver, he's proclaiming the truth. To be courageous, to be bold, to stand against the corrupt religious system. I don't know if I have that kind of zeal. I don't know if I get that excited about it. If that's where you're at this morning, the only remedy to your lackluster response to God is to fix your eyes on Christ. To remember what Jesus has done, what he did to take your place and what he offers you now by his grace. So let us together fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us believe that he is the true and better temple and he has grafted us in together. And let us be sanctified by the spirit and sent out on God's mission for his glory and for the joy of all people. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are eternally wise. There is no wisdom that exists outside of you. And as your people, we desire to be made wise. And through the work of Christ, you have paved the way for us to know you, to understand our sin, that, that, that there, we are plagued by sin. And we're lying if we say there's, there's not sin in our lives. And so we confess our sins to you this morning, Lord. This, this meal we're about to partake in is a reminder um, that Jesus took it all for us, that his body was broken, it was his blood that shed so that we would be sanctified and purified and cleansed. Help us to live like those who have been cleansed. Free us from the bondage of the flesh and let us be alive in your spirit to live righteously and live zealously for your kingdom's advance. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.